last week in the New York Times there was an article where a guy does an editorial piece and he inter- he's been interviewing uh, religious leaders and he interviewed this president of a 200-year-old seminary and asked them uh, about Jesus. What this person thought about Jesus and about the physical resurrection. Now keep in mind, this is a 200-year-old seminary up in the Northeast. And the president of this seminary said, first of all, they don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus. Second, they don't believe in the virgin birth. They think it's bizarre. And third, they don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in a judgment. That God is not a judge. And this is the president of a seminary. I don't know. But, but, here's, but, but here's the thing. The New York Times published this and it goes out and the way it's presented, you look at it and go, yeah, I can, I can have a general belief in God for just the goodness of life. Some universalist kind of mentality that, yeah, it's just all about love. And that's what came across in the article. But this person is the head of a seminary training and dispensing people who are leading different sects called Christian throughout the country and the world. And I, I just saw that and I'm going, how bizarre. I mean, how, this is on Easter. They put this out. And you know who the master liar is, right? We know who the master liar is. It's Satan. But, but what he's done is he's taken the question that everybody in the universe throughout history has had to deal with. It is a single most important question in time and is what do you do with Jesus and he's taken it and he said you know what it's okay if you just believe he was a good man that's what he's done with that article you know Jesus was a good guy but he wasn't a savior of sin he wasn't the son of God he was just a good guy he was an ideal And that's unfortunately what a lot of people live their life out believing, not necessarily in what they say, but what they do with their life. You see, it's not what you say, it's what you do ultimately that reveals what you believe. And and so, as we've been working through Matthew, I don't know about you, but I was, this Easter was particularly meaningful for me as I've worked through Matthew. I've learned things about Jesus that I, I never really thought about growing up as a Christian. I learned things about his continued reaching out to people that reject him. His continued love to people that hated him. And yet he kept reaching out. He was not just an ideal. He was this merciful, loving God. And yes, he is love, but he's just. He also made some very specific statements about judgment one day for those that reject him. And and we see even in this passage today in Matthew 27, two real questions, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share them with you, and then we're going to go back and we're going to kind of read the text, and we're going to really hopefully apply these questions to our own life. The first question is, how am I dealing with my sin? How do I deal with my sin in my life? Not Anders' sin, not John's sin, not Joe's sin. How am I dealing with my sin? There's a lot of ways we can deal with it. We can pretend it's not there. 
We can act like we don't sin. Jesus talks about sin, sins of our thoughts, not just our actions, but how do we deal with our sin? Do you realize there's probably not a guy in this room, I doubt very seriously, who doesn't sin every day in thought, word, or deed? And so how do we deal with that? That's really an important question. But a bigger question that we, we see in the second part of the text is, what do I do with Jesus? What do I really do with Him? Not what I say I want to do, but what do I really do with Him on a daily basis? What, what, what part does He play in my life? How do I respond to Him daily? And, you know, just to set the stage a little bit, we're... Uh, we're, we're at the end of Passion Week. We're in the trials of Jesus. There's six trials of Jesus, actually. Uh, there's three before Caiaphas and Annas, really the religious leaders. There's three before the secular authorities, both uh, Pilate and Herod. And so we're at the part of the trial now. We're going to see uh, the first part of this uh, passage today is the last trial before the religious leaders and the first trial before the secular leaders. But what has happened, just as a reminder for you guys who haven't been here, Monday of the last week of Jesus' life, He rides down. It's called Ten Nisan. He rides down from Bethany, down the Mount of Olives, uh, on a don- actually from the Mount of Olives, I'm sorry, on a donkey down the Kidron Valley to the temple as people are proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He that comes in the name of the Lord, quoting from Psalms, fulfilling prophecy from Zechariah and Daniel, the exact day that uh, was prophesied back in Daniel. Also, it was Lamb Selection Day. It was they they selected their Passover lamb that He chose to be proclaimed as Messiah coming down by the people. There's no coincidence. And then He gets down to the temple, turns around, goes back to Bethany on Tuesday. He comes back. He curses a fig tree on the way in to illustrate to his disciples a point that a useless or a fruitless fruit tree is a useless fruit tree and he's talking about Israel the very reason that Israel was chosen was to produce fruit spiritually throughout the world and they rejected the very one that came to give them life to do that give them the ability to do that and they were rejected him and so he goes on and he cleanses the temple turns over the tables on Tuesday then leaves, goes back to Bethany, comes back to win- on Wednesday to the temple, teaches, is questioned by the religious leaders, uh, turns every question they ask, every trap they try to throw at him, he flips it on them. And then he goes back, and on his way back, he stops on the Mount of Olives, and he gives the Olivet Discourse. And he teaches about his second coming. And he says, you need to be watchful, you need to be alert, You need to be ready because there's going to come a day when I come back. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. I'm coming back and you need to be ready. And we talked about that WAR uh, acronym. Watchful, alert, and ready. And then he has the last great Passover that's sanctioned by God. It's the last God-sanctioned Passover that he leads his disciples. Judas has already uh, set up with the religious leaders what he's going to do. 30 pieces of silver he's going to get. That's the price for him to walk away from Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. He gets that. He sets Jesus up. Jesus says, go do what you got to do. Then he takes his 11 disciples. And what we saw last week, Matthew portrayed three types of worshipers. Because as Matthew is telling the story, he tells us he brings forward by four days Mary anointing Jesus for his burial. 
And he shows us a true worshiper, what a really true worshiper looks like in Mary. They're repentant, they're broken, they're humble. And that's the ideal for all of us. But then Matthew shows us at the beginning of 26, Judas, who is a false worshiper. He's prideful, he's unrepentant. He never believed Jesus was who he said he was. He had a Jesus that he wanted him to be. And unfortunately, guys, I believe that's the way most of the world is today. They have a, the people, most of the people that profess Jesus have a Jesus they want him to be. And at one day they're going to figure out he's not who they want him to be. And uh, they may be like Judas. They may walk out on him. Because that's what Judas did. Because he was unrepentant, unbroken, and prideful. But then Matthew lays out Peter. And we see in Peter a prideful but broken, repentant sinner. And he's the one who gives me hope out of that whole group. Because he's a guy who wants to follow Jesus, but he's struggling with doing it because he does it in his flesh. He does it in his own strength. And what Jesus says to him, remember he says, we didn't see it here, it was in another account, but he says, Peter, Satan's asked to sift you, and when you return, and that's the key to true believers, they always return to Jesus. It's not that you're perfect, but the direction of your life is ultimate loyalty to Jesus. You may blow it for a day, you may blow it for a week, but ultimately you're going to come back to Him because you know there's nowhere else to go. Like in John 6, when Jesus asked Peter, Peter, are you going to leave with these? He says, I don't know where else to go for life, Lord. You're, you're the only one. And then last week, when we looked at the last part of uh, chapter 26, we saw Jesus modeling in the garden at Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane means oil press, where Jesus was pressed. He was crushed. That's where the real battle took place. And we saw Jesus model that we obey our calling even when our flesh resisted. Even when our flesh is going, I don't like this, we obey. And Jesus modeled that because He's a priest who sympathizes and He's not just telling us to do something that He doesn't first model. But we also saw in that too that we are to stand firm when our calling gets difficult and costly. The disciples didn't do that. They bolted when the pressure came up. Every one of them left Him. Every one. There wasn't one that stayed. Peter tried. He stayed at a distance, it says. But he just even Peter bolted so much so that he used vile cuss words to disassociate himself for Jesus so that people would think he's not from Him. And the reason is, we saw that Peter did not rely on the strength of the Lord. He relied on his own strength. Well, today, we look at this passage in 27, and it's, it's really the culmination, guys, of what we began back in Matthew 1. It's, it's the cross time. It's getting closer and closer. And now Jesus is going before the secular authorities, the one who can put Him on the cross. See, the, the Jewish people couldn't put Him on a cross. They couldn't. They couldn't fulfill the prophecies back in Psalm 22 or back in Zechariah about Him being pierced or His hands and His feet being pierced. But the Romans could. He had to get to this point. And so as we look in this section, I've given you the two thoughts. How am I dealing with my sin and what am I doing with Jesus? Let's look in 27, and we're going to read the first 26 verses. 
And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at these two questions in light of the text and in light of our life. Starting in chapter 27, verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, they had to do it in the morning. You see, they're doing it now in the morning because what they had done the night before was illegal. They had already had two trials, one before Caiaphas back over in John chapter 18. I'm sorry, in front of Annas. And and what we read last week, or last time we were together, in front of Caiaphas. But it had been at night. That's illegal in the Jewish system. The way they had designed it, you had to have the trial in the open daylight, not at nighttime, in secrecy. And so under a veneer of doing things the right way, they're having this expedient trial. It's about 5 a.m. in the morning. And this trial lasts about 15 minutes. How legal can that be, David? You're an attorney. <laughs> How would you like a 15-minute trial? Do you think the verdict's in? Yes. Yeah, the verdict's in. And it says, and they bound him, they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Fifteen minutes, and it was over. They had already made up their decision. They had already beaten him. Now, I want you to get a picture of what's going on with Jesus right now. If you remember from what we read last time, they had already interrogated him. They had beaten him. The Jewish people had beaten him. Was that legal? No, that wasn't legal either. They spit on him. His face was, was bloodied and bruised from being beaten. Prophesy, who hit you? Messiah, if you're so great, spittle all over his face. And they bring him as a seditionist to, to Pilate. As a guy who's going to overthrow the Roman government, a threat. And I promise you, when Pilate saw him, he didn't see a threat. He saw a beaten guy who had no followers, who had no, no, he had heard nothing. You, this is not the first time Pilate has heard about Jesus, I promise you. He was the Roman governor. He was keeping tabs of what went on in his country. And he, he had not heard any sedition stuff about Jesus before this. He'd heard maybe some religious st- stories about him. So he comes before Pilate, and after they deliver it, says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, He changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? Now, weren't the priests supposed to be people that helped you be forgiven when you acknowledged your sin? You see, they don't care. They don't care about Judas. They don't care about people. They only care about their power and their money. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. In other words, you take care of your own sin. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Their hypocrisy has no, no end. We can't take this money because, you know what? It's blood money. The guy just came to us asking us help to absolve him of sin. 
And the sacrifice for sin is tomorrow. They had no use for Judas. They were hypocrites. So they took counsel. They brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, you won't find that prophecy in the book of Jeremiah if you look for it. But what a lot of people believe is that was an oral prophecy because there were a lot of oral prophecies that were not written, but it was recorded in the book of Zechariah. And they believe that the young prophet Zechariah was quoting the oral prophecies of the prophet Jeremiah. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. This is the third time that Jesus has used this language. First time was when Judas said, Is it I, Rabbi? You've said it. Second time, Caiaphas, are you the Christ? You've said it. And now, Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? He didn't say, yes, I am. He said, you have said so. (laughs) But when he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. You see, most people, if they were about to go to the cross, they would have been begging for their life. Not Jesus. He, he wouldn't hurt a bruised reed, right? He, he, he fulfilled all the prophecies. He just stood there. He stood firm. He knew where he was going. He was not running from it. He didn't want to beg his way out of it. He was at this point resolved to go to it. Now, at the feast, in other words, the Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, that was a tradition that uh, Pilate was following because he was appeasing the Jewish people in order to try to keep peace. He would do this one thing every year at the Passover. He would take one prisoner and give them an opportunity to be released. And so, and they had a notorious, that word means famous, a famous prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was, not, it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. You see, Jesus knew the story. He knew the crowd loved Jesus. He knew on what happened on Monday. You think he didn't know on Monday they were shouting, praise him, praise him, Hosanna? There was a crowd of people following him down to the temple. He was in charge. His uh, centurions would have let him know that. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, 
Which of the two men do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, the very thing he could not afford, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his word. I, w- I want you to flip over to John 18 real quick because John 18 gives the, the, uh, a, a little more detailed account of this. It's John 18, 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own laws. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Do you say this of your own account or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus said, "You answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. He was a robber. He was a thief. He was a murderer. So, here you have Jesus. And prior to Jesus, Matthew brings out Judas. And I think the reason he deals with Judas is because what Judas is struggling with is what every man struggles with. You see, Judas compromised on life because he wasn't getting what he wanted. He took matters into his own hands and that is the essence of sin. When Satan back in the Garden of Eden, Eden said, "Do you know, if you eat of that tree, you can have it your way. If God really loved you, you could eat from that one tree that He told you not. Yeah, they didn't think about all the trees that they could eat from. They thought about only the one that God said not to eat from. And isn't that the way it is with us? 
How many times we don't look at all the things God gives us, we always focus on what we don't have, the thing we want, the thing our flesh cries out for. That's the essence of sin, is the pride to think that we deserve anything. Guys, listen, we don't deserve the air we breathe. None of us. And if we were more grateful, I guarantee you there'd be a lot less sin in our life. It's the pride that says, I, I should have this. I'm somebody. And, and Judas did not get what he wanted with Jesus. He had Jesus. Jesus was supposed to be the guy that was going to kick Rome out. Whatever else Judas wanted out of it, but he didn't get it. And so he goes, okay, either one, I'm going to go force his hand, or two, I don't care. I'm just going to get some money out of the deal. And he sells him. And he realizes, oh no. When he sees Jesus condemned, and he realizes he had a part in that, and that's really where we are with sin. And I think, see, most of us can look down on a guy like Adolf Hitler. We can look down on a guy who murders a, a, a two or three year old little child. But we don't like looking in a mirror and seeing the murder in our own heart. You see, every one of us killed Jesus. Every one of us is guilty of what Judas did. We betrayed Jesus. If we could have been innocent, if we could have been sinless, He would not have had to die. So we're all guilty of the conspiracy of Jesus. We all deal with what Judas had to deal with, sin. And Judas tried to deal with it in his own strength. That's why this question of what, is I, what do I do with my sin is so important. Because, yeah, it's not just raising your hand when you're a kid and being confirmed in a church. It's not just walking an aisle because some evangelist makes you emotionally charged up. It's realizing that God is the only one that can take your sin. And when you realize that, and you understand that, you let Him take it and say, okay, God, I want you not only to take the sin in my life, I want you to transform my life so that I'm not continually walking in that. I don't just want a destination of being in heaven. I want you to take it out of me. And the whole Christian life is a transformation process. It's, 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 not, just a, it's not a rehab project. It's a complete rebuild. He starts from the inside out. And if you look at your life, 15 years ago should be a lot different than it is right now. Just because you pray a prayer doesn't make that change. You've got to have Jesus on the inside of your heart. You've got to have given Him not only the Saviorhood of your life, but the Lordship of your life. Those are two sides of the same coin. And we live in a country where I've heard people preach this, that you can trust Jesus as Savior, but reject Him as Lord. That's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. You cannot reject Him as Lord. You will find that nowhere in Scripture. Is He gracious? Yes, He's very gracious. He's loving. But you cannot reject His Lordship and embrace His Saviorhood. And, and so Judas is, is dealing with his sin here in his own flesh. And, and when I think back, think back to Adam. There's lots of ways we respond to sin. How did Adam respond to sin back in, in, in Genesis chapter 3? Yeah. Yeah. When, when, when he was confronted by God, Adam, oh, did you eat of that tree? She made me do it. When you're confronted with sin, is your first response to point blame somewhere else? It's so nature in our nature to do that. 
I think of King Saul back in 1 Samuel 15. When Samuel comes and confronts him about his sin, you know what he does? Instead of repenting, and guys, there's a difference between remorse and repent. Judas was very remorseful. He was not repentant. There's a difference. King Saul was remorseful of what he had done back in Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15. But when Samuel confronted him, he said, they made me do it. The people wanted this to happen. And Samuel chastised him. Oh, Samuel, stay with me. He tore Samuel's robe because he wanted people to still think he had God's blessing even though he was not repentant. You see, what I see with people who are truly repentant is they don't try to manage their consequences. But when you're remorseful, you spend the majority of your time trying to manage the consequences of your sin. That's the difference to me. And, and you see it in, um, it, you know, Gehazi's another example, is a guy who, uh, he was Elisha's servant. He's, he, he went and he was greedy and when confronted, he did not take responsibility. That's always a key indicator of remorse versus repentance. Somebody who's willing to take responsibility. And we see it in Judas in verses 3-5. through five. He, goes, he goes, you know what? Take the money back. What I did was wrong. But he didn't come back to Jesus. He didn't come back to Him for forgiveness. He went to the religious leaders, the religious system. And a lot of people go to religious systems to try to make themselves feel better. But that's not the answer. Coming to Jesus is the only thing we can do with our sin. Amen. And then we see Pilate. Dealing with this second question. He says, what am I to do with Jesus? He asked the crowd that. I think it's great that God puts that in Scripture for us to have to work through. What do I do with Jesus? I thought about, I just went through and I made a list of what the people here in the Scriptures did with Jesus. The religious leaders just outright rejected Him. I don't think anybody in this room is in that category that they just outright reject Jesus. I do know people that have done that in my life. That's what the religious leaders did. Judas betrayed him. He actually betrayed him. He walked with him for a while. He pretended to be with him for a while, but he never really was with him. 1 John 2.19 says, they left because they were never really part of us. He never bought into it. But he, he betrayed him. The disciples deserted him. They walked out. They couldn't hang with Him. It got too hot for them. And they, they bolted. Now, 11 of them came back. Their ultimate loyalty was that they came back to Him. And you know what I found in my life? When I bolt and then I come back, the stronger I get not to bolt the next time. And that's what you see in the disciples. That Peter kept making mistakes. Look at how many mistakes Peter makes. But he keeps coming back. And he's never perfect. We're never perfect this side of heaven. We're going to struggle. But the, the more we keep coming back to Him, the more we're reminded of the cross, the more we're reminded we should be grateful. And when you're grateful, it's hard to be prideful. But look at Pilate. Pilate was indifferent to Him. 
He wanted to put it off. You see, Pilate sends him over to Herod. Somebody says, isn't this the Galilean? He goes, wow. Well, Galilee is really under Herod's leadership. I'm going to send him off to Herod and let Herod deal with him. I don't want to have anything to do with this guy. There's a lot of people I know in life who try to just say, you know what? It's okay for you to believe. I just don't care. I just want to stay by. If you want to trust it, that's fine. They're indifferent. Pilate was indifferent. He pawned him off on... It's still religious leaders. You go crucify him. They were trying to say he was a seditionist. If you look over in Luke chapter 2, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it says there were three things. They, you know, He said don't pay tribute. He was leading a riot and he was a seditionist. He was a king. said he was a king, a leader. They tried to get him brought up on sedition charges. And so Pilate, trying to distance himself, he goes, they want a seditionist? I'll give them a seditionist. I'll give them Barabbas. He's the most famous seditionist there is. I will give Barabbas to the crowd. They love Jesus. It's only the religious leaders that hate Him. The crowd will choose Jesus. I'll get off. And I won't have to deal with it. Let me tell you, there's one question in life that you will never get away from and you will ultimately have to deal with, and that is, what do you do with Jesus? I don't care what you say this side of heaven, everybody will have to deal with that issue. And why? Why is that the most important question that was ever asked? Why is that the most important question that we ever have to deal with? Well, John 1.3 says, all things were made by Him. Everything was made by Him. Colossians 1.17 says He is before all things and He holds everything together. That's why. Philippians 2.10 Before Him, every knee shall bow. That's why we have to deal with that question. Hebrews 13.8 says He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Mark 2.5 says He forgives sin. You see, I remember one time a Muslim and I, I was sharing the Gospel. And you know the question that got him was, what do you do with your sin? How do you deal with your sin? Well, we can only hope that he would, Allah would you know, think that I've done enough good in my life to make up. There's no hope in that. You're never going to be good enough to measure up because you're, you're full, according to what Jesus said, of, of selfishness. And He will spend his entire, your entire existence on earth rooting that out if you will let Him. But it's a process. But it never gets rooted out here on earth. Totally. There's nobody, even with Christ, in the, in the inner part of their life who is sinless this side of heaven. You just can't be. That, that, because that soul lives in a body that craves fleshly things. What do you do with it? Are you like the crowd? The crowd wanted anything other than Jesus. You know that? For them to choose Barabbas, they wanted anything other than Jesus. They chose a murderer. They chose a thief. Jesus did nothing but heal people. He did nothing but help people. 
And the people were misled by the crowd. That's why crowds are so fickle, man. One minute they're praising Him, the next minute they're saying crucify. Isn't that crazy? Let His blood be not only on us, but our children. Would you ever say that? Yeah, David. His blood on their children, 40 years to the day, the next day, Masada fell. Yeah. When they AD moved, 70, yeah. When, well, well I was, no, it was after that. When Jerusalem it, fell yeah, in 70. Yeah, 70, but it was like it, 73. 73 AD yeah. is when Masada fell, and they literally killed themselves. They, they sacrificed their own children to keep them from the Romans. Yeah, so here's what's crazy. If you think about that, here they're saying, crucify Him. We have no king but Caesar. Forty years later, they're saying, we can't let Caesar rule over us. They're just fickle. They have no conviction. They wanted anything other than Jesus. I find it interesting, as I was doing research, do you know that there are some manuscripts that have the name Jesus, Barabbas? Jesus was a common name. And some people believe that it was left out of the, the other manuscripts out of respect and reverence for Jesus. But the, the term Barabbas, Bar means son of. Abbas is Abba, father. Son of a father. That's what the name means. His name was Jesus, son of a father. And I find it interesting, you have these, these two guys. You have... Jesus Barabbas, son of a father. Jesus Christ, son of the father. You have Barabbas who was a murderer. And you have Jesus over here who was innocent of everything. Never one sin. You have Barabbas, son of a father over here who was evil. And you have Jesus Christ over here, son of the father, who was pure goodness. You have Jesus Barabbas, son of a father over here who was set free because of Jesus Christ, Son of the Father over here who was crucified. Jesus said He was the Father. He said in John 14.9, to see Him is to see the Father. When you see Him, He says, is to see the Father. Mark 9.37, to receive Him is to receive the Father. He said in John 8.19, to know Him is to know the Father. John 15, 23, to hate Him is to hate the Father. And in John 10, 30, He said, I and the Father are one. You have two sons of the fathers here. You've got son of a father and son of the father. Barabbas represents man. Jesus is God's son. And, and the, the issue is, what are we doing with Jesus? What do we do? I've laid out what the other people did, but the question ultimately revolves around you. What are you doing? It's not just enough, guys, to say at some point in your life, yes, I trust Jesus. That, I'm not saying there's a works-based salvation. Don't hear me saying that. Don't try to make what I'm saying that. What I'm saying is there's, there's been a m misapplication of God's Word in our culture that has led people to believe that the spiritual relationship with God the Father is about a destination rather than a relationship. The destination is a byproduct of the relationship. 
But the goal is not to get to the destination. The goal is to be in the relationship. You see, God created you and me for that relationship. One where we're dependent on Him every day. Not just once for a one and done, but every day that when we wake up in the morning, God, I can't get through this day without You. I need You. I trust You. You created me. I'm grateful for all that You do for me. But because of our selfishness and our self-ledness, that relationship was severed. And, and you don't have to teach a little child how to lie. We are born into the world sinful. We're born with a sin nature. It's like a cancer spiritually that just, just devastates us. And we can hide it pretty well until you get under stress or you get in a bad way and it comes out pretty easily. But the Bible says because we are sinful and self-led and has broken God's law, we deserve eternal death. Now imagine the worst pain you could ever imagine multiplied thousands of times experienced alone with no help and no hope. That's an awful place to be. And the Bible says that that is the destiny for those who do not have a relationship with God the Father because of Jesus Christ. But God in His mercy sent His Son Jesus 2,000 years ago who was born of a virgin. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He said, I'm going to die on a cross. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. And anyone who places their faith in Me, not in what I do necessarily alone, which is what a lot of people have done. They believe that Jesus died on the cross like the demons believe. He says, no, you place your faith in Me, in Jesus Christ. You follow Me. He never told anybody to pray a prayer in the New Testament. You know that? Looked and tried to find it. Other than He taught, taught the disciples how to pray. But He never told one person, hey, pray this prayer to God the Father and you'll be a believer. He told people, you follow Me. You follow Me. And I'll make you fishers of men. You follow Me. And somehow along the line, that got twisted into, hey, if you just pray this, you're one and done. And it was, it was not even about a relationship. It was about getting a check in the blocks going to heaven. And he said, no, it's placing your faith in me. You have to turn. You're going this way. You're self-led. And you say, nope, I want to go this way, God. And the only way I can get there is if you take me there. And you trust and rest in Him. And you go to Him and you tell Him, I want to turn from this lifestyle. That's what the word repent means. I want to turn from this way of thinking. I want to turn from being my own leader. And I want you to lead me, and I'm trusting you to save me, and I'm yours. I'm all yours. That's what it means. That is the Gospel. And that's what He wants us to do with Jesus. He wants to entrust our life to Him. And the Bible says, if you love me, you will obey me. That's what Jesus says. Matthew 7.21 says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be in heaven. Because not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is part of my family. And over in um, Luke 6.46, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I tell you to do? It's because you cannot do what He tells you to do if you don't love Him. And you can't love Him if you don't know Him. And you can't know Him if you haven't really repented. You just can't. You can know about Him. And a lot of people know about Him, but they don't know Him. And my prayer and hope for every man in here and every man that I encounter is that they would come to know 
Jesus. Like Paul says, Oh, I wish that you were like me except for these chains. I want you to know Him the way I know Him. Guys, I want you to know Jesus the way I know Him. Because He's everything to me. He's everything. What are you doing with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. This is such a good reminder, Lord, of what You did for us and Your love for us, Your desire for us. And Lord, it's a question we all have to wrestle with. I have no doubt that every guy in here, Lord, has some kind of desire to know You. My prayer is that it would be the desire to know You the way Your disciples knew You, the way so many people have known You throughout history who've willingly laid their lives down. And You may not be calling us to be martyred for You, but Lord, You do call us to obey You. And it's so easy for us to let the world pull us away. And there may be some here, Father, today who who have known about You and not really embraced Your Lordship. I pray that right now, Lord, if that is describing anyone here, that You would move in their hearts to to just repent, to turn and say, Lord, I want to know You. I really want to trust You. I want to know You as a son knows a father. I want to know Your love. I want to know Your protection. But Lord, I want to know You. I want to follow You. And you can just tell them that in your own words. Lord, I uh, pray for those of us who have known You, but we've allowed the world to distract us, that You would strengthen us to be more surrendered to You now than ever to be your witnesses for truth in the world around us, to do so with love, but to do so with a boldness, to be part of the five percenters, Lord, that are unashamed to tell people that we're your children. Thank you that we have that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.